All right, so today we start a new series. Um, I'm going to need a prop for this. I need Play-Doh. We got any Play-Doh back there? Play-Doh? Thank you. We get, I need more Play-Doh. Do we have more Play-Doh? Thank you. Thank you. Good, good job on that. Give it, give it up for the Play-Doh thrower. <clears throat> Rachel was the obvious choice for throwing Play-Doh for her athleticism. Um, so I've got some Play-Doh here, and I can make several things with this. Y'all, y'all, everyone knows what Play-Doh is, right? It's going to be super weird if you didn't. So this is Play-Doh. Watch this. Watch this. Check this out. What's this? It's a ball. That's pretty good, right? Hold on. Hold on. I can make some other things. Y'all just chill out and just kind of talk amongst yourselves. Relax. We still doing popcorn? Oh, that's a shame. Y'all could be enjoying popcorn right now. Okay, what's this? Snake. Snake. Good job. All right, all right. Hold on. I'll make some, let me make something with the pink one. I'm going somewhere with this. Y'all just relax. Maybe. Look, here's something. Here's something. It's um, an ashtray. <laughs> Here's an ashtray. So that's good. All right. <laughs> Probably should have thought this through more than I did. <laughs> All right. Here's one. Watch this. Watch this. Y'all ready for this one? This little thing right here. Uh, it's not Olaf. Hold on. Look. What's this? It's God. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not the God. It's not the God, obviously. It's just a God that I've created out of Plato. And I, I like this God because I made him. Um, I conformed him to the image I wanted him to be. This is what I wanted him to be. And I like that, I like that he's kind of fearless in his style, that he wears, you know, neons. I like that. Um, I like that this God that I've created is all love, loves everything I do no matter what I do. Um, he has, he does, he completely ignores my sin, because uh, I made this God, right? And so he ignores my sin. Uh, he's powerful, but only uses his power to make my life better. Like, he's one of those gods that, that like, if I have enough, if I believe I want it bad enough, he'll give it to me no matter what it is. And so I take this God to buy my lottery tickets, and, you know, like, he affirms me every single thing about me. Uh, you know, I lo- this is the God that I have created here he is. I've designed him. He is now God. And that's a Plato God. And, and the problem that I see in the world today is that too many people are worshiping a Plato God. They're worshiping a God that they created. A God that we basically take the things we really like about God and we combine them into this thing we call God and we take the things we don't like, like, you know, wrath or hatred of sin. Ooh, don't want any of those things in my God. We just take the things we really like about God and we combine them together and that becomes our Plato God. And there, there are pastors in the world who've gotten really big churches by creating Plato gods, and then they invite everyone else to worship this. This is not God. It's just the God I made. Uh, I read this quote from a pastor. I thought it was genius. He said, uh, God created man in his own image, and then man promptly went about returning the favor. We promptly begin to create God in our image, in the image we wanted God to be. And so this is what too many people now worship, a Plato God that is created in our image that has no real power or authority. He just kind of makes us feel good right? Doesn't call us up or anything. He's just there. And the problem is, if this is the God you're worshiping, the God that you have created, then your worship has no real power. 
And if this is the God you've created, and this is the God you're worshiping, you're saying the name God, but it doesn't really mean anything because it's not God. It'd be, it'd be like this. Say I wrote a song for my wife. My wife's name is Christy. M- many of y'all know my wife. She's, she's cool. And so like, imagine I wrote a song about my wife and the song went like this. <laughs> Stop. Stop it. All right, here's the song I wrote about my wife, Christy. Oh, Christy, I love your six foot five tallness and your long, long dark hair and your deep blue eyes and the fact that you don't care how much ice cream I eat and you never talk to me about functional medicine and vegetables. How great is my wife? (laughs) Sing with me. For those of you who know my wife, is that a song about her? No, but I said the name Christy. This is what we do with God. We're singing, how great is our God? How great is my Plato God? You know, and it, it's not the real God. Because we don't know the real God. Or we don't want to know the real God. Or we don't like the real God. And so sometimes we just make a Plato God and that's the God we worship. But this is a house that values worship. Like, as a matter of fact, we have a saying, and it's written back there on the wall, and it says, everyone needs Jesus. Do you know why we believe everyone needs Jesus? Because we believe everyone was designed to worship the one true God. And you cannot worship the one true God unless you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so we believe that everyone needs Jesus because everyone is designed to worship the real God. But you can't worship the real God if you don't know him. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about some attributes of God. That's a churchy thing to do, isn't it? We're going to talk about God for the next few weeks. And, I mean, obviously we should always do this, and we could have a, like, 987-part series on the attributes of God. But I'm going to pick about three or four because that's sort of my attention span and because I want to talk about the ones where I feel like there's the most misunderstandings in the world. And we're going to, Because the end goal of this series, the end goal of this is worship. Because this is the house of worship. The end goal of this series is that we would worship the one true God together. And so to do this, we're going to use a book of the Bible called Psalms. And Psalms is a book of worship. And so when you read the Psalms, uh, you're not reading it like a history book, although there is some history in it. You're reading it as a book of poetry, a book of songs, a book of worship written by people who weren't worshiping the Plato God. They were worshiping the one true God. And so we're going to use the Psalms to help us learn to worship God in truth. Sound fun? Y'all with me? All right. Psalm 47. This is where we're going to start. This is a cool one. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amidst the soundings of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over all the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to him, and he is greatly exalted. Amen. I love that one. What is this psalm not about? The dominance of America. Okay, don't don't take psalms written about 
Israel and say, oh, look at this. We're the best country in the world. It says right here, God puts people under our feet. I love America just as much as you, but this is not a psalm about the dominance of our country, okay? What is it a psalm about? It's a psalm about the power of God. Oh, it says, it says, nations bow to him, sing praises. He's king over all the earth. He reigns over all nations. He, everything belongs to God. He is greatly exalted. And so there's a message in this psalm and in the Psalms and in the whole Bible. There's a message repeated over and over and over. And that message is God is all powerful. The word, the word that we use to describe this is a word called sovereign. Y'all ever heard that word? Sovereign. God is sovereign. And, and the definition for that word is uh, a sovereign is a supreme ruler possessing superior or ultimate power. And it's a psalm about a sovereign, all-powerful God. And they're singing praises to this all-powerful God. Why? Because he's good. And so the message from today, the message for today, and the message of this psalm is God is sovereign, God is all-powerful, and God is good. And y'all are like, duh. All right, great message, Tommy. Super original. Okay, I got it. Right. Sue me. It's a 3,000-year-old book. You come up with something original. But, but what I, what I want to say about this may be a little different than what we've typically said. We all know God is good and God is all-powerful. So what's going on in the world right now? The Rona. People are dying. People have died. Uh, you may sit in the room with someone who's lost a loved one at some point. You may already have. Maybe you've lost a loved one. And oftentimes in situations like that, where someone loses a loved one, well-meaning church people will come in and they will say something like this. That was God's plan. You ever heard it? That was God's plan. I lost my loved one. That was God's plan. Or maybe they'll say something like, I, I've heard this, you know, where, where a child loses a parent and someone says to that child something like, well, God must have needed another angel. Right? Like, this is the message. And, and, and we're talking to the world and we're telling them things and we're responding to disaster. And you need to decide, based on your understanding of the sovereignty of God, how will you address that person in that moment? Because I think what people get too often from the church is a message that says, in the midst of your tragedy, we want you to know this. Every single thing, bad or good, that happens in the world was orchestrated by God. Everything. Because God is sovereign. And I'm not sure that's really the message that's biblical, accurate, or the message that the world needs from the church. And so what does it really mean? What would you say to that person right now who comes to you and says, why? Why this? Why now? Because our response to hardship and pain reveals what we truly believe about God. And, and, and people are going to ask this question. And if you never have a conversation with someone where they say something like, your God is in control? Is he in control of this? What kind of God is that? If you never have these conversations with people, then your circle only exists to people who think like you and you need to expand your circle. Because you should occasionally be having a conversation with someone who says, this is your God? 600,000 dead from, this is your God. And I have to respond to that in a way 
that brings healing, hope, and honors my God. And so today we prepare to respond in a way that's true. And so this isn't a new question. This isn't a new, and as, as I'm talking about the sovereignty of God, many of us who grew up in church, we've got opinions and we've got ideas, and this is not new. In the book of Isaiah, uh, there's, there's a prophet, and his name is John, and uh, I'm kidding, his name is Isaiah. And so Isaiah's job is to go to the nation of Israel. This is his job, right? God says, Isaiah, I want you to go to the nation of Israel, and I want you to tell them, and the whole first half of the book of Isaiah is this. I want you to go to the nation of Israel and tell them they're about to experience my judgment. Tell them they're about to be taken into captivity in Babylon. Uh, tell them judgment is coming. And I'm reading that and I'm going, at least he didn't have to tell them to wear a mask. Phew. I don't even feel bad for Isaiah. He got lucky. But that's the first half of the book, right? The first half of the book is Isaiah telling the nation of Israel that judgment is coming. And so if you're reading the book of Isaiah, you need to understand this. There's a switch halfway through the book. So you're reading Isaiah, the first half is judgment is coming. The second half of Isaiah is taking place after the nation of Israel has been taken captive in Babylon. So the second half of Isaiah is him telling them what, they, they, he said it's coming, the second half is afterwards. So God sends him to the nation of Israel with a new message after everything Isaiah said was going to happen has already happened. You with me? Does this make sense? So the second half is afterwards, and th this is what he says in Isaiah 40. You who bring good news to Zion, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. What's the purpose of this passage? Isaiah is speaking into a group of people and he's saying, your exile doesn't mean your God is not still in control. He's talking to people because remember, in pain, the truth about what you believe about God is going to come out. And so he's looking to a bunch of people who have experienced great pain. He's saying, God is still in control. God is still sovereign. God is still all-knowing. God is still all-powerful. God is still those things. And then he says, and God is like a shepherd who holds his sheep close to his heart. He's saying, God is sovereign and God is good. How do you think they received that message right then? Excuse me, we were just in captivity for like 70 years. A bunch of my friends died. They're struggling with this. Just like the world struggles when we just say, hey, God is good. I mean, this is what y'all have heard, God is good. And the other half of people say, God is good all the time. And the rest of the world's like, I don't know about that. And, and we can't just dismiss the fears and the pains of the world with Christian cliches like, well, God is in control. Someone comes to you and says, my, you know, my, 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 love, my husband's got corona, and I'm scared. And I don't know what's going to happen. God's in control. But this is what we do, isn't it? They don't need cliches from us. They need well-thought-out responses to real pain in a real world. And so how, how do we work through this? If God is sovereign, but the world is still broken, if God is in control, but the world feels a little out of control, 
How do we make sense of this? And I think to do that, we have to go back to the original story. The original story and the story of the first half of the Bible is that God creates this incredible place, incredible place with everything where there's no death and no disease and there's no fear and you're walking with God in the cool of the morning, but he gives us one thing that is incredibly important to know. What is the one thing God gives man and woman in the midst of the world? You want to guess what it is? Choice, freedom, that's it. Freedom. So God says, here it is, man. Here's the world I've created for you. But in the midst of that world, God says, but you have freedom. And as we exercised our freedom, God's, God's creation became perverted and corrupt. And good fell and became damaged. And so the world we're living in is, is, is a fraction. Guys, the most beautiful sunset you have ever seen is a broken picture of the beauty God created sunsets to be. We're looking at a broken, stained world, and that's the story of the Bible. But the other story of the Bible is, in the midst of humans making choice that broke the world, God is still in control and his plans will come to pass. It almost feels like a square peg in a round hole sometimes, doesn't it? How do those two things go together? In the midst of a world where we used choice to break it, God still has a perfect plan that has never failed to redeem it. And God was not surprised by our choice. And typically, what we end up with is two different camps on this, on this topic. So the first camp basically says, God is in control of everything, right? God is in control of everything. That God, imagine God like, um, imagine God like Shakespeare. He writes, he writes a play or he writes a sonnet or something like that, or I don't know what else Shakespeare wrote, raps, I don't know, but he writes something. And, and he knows every single thing every character is going to do. As a matter of fact, he wrote that into the play. So when you turned left, God wrote it. And God knows exactly how the story is going to end. He knows every single part of it. As a matter of fact, God wrote, God ordained is the word we use, right? God ordained every single step of every character in the play up until the end. That's, that's one opinion. The problem with that idea is that at some point we chose evil. How many of you have ever sinned? It's, you're in a safe place, trust me. Okay, that's good. About 100%. That's what I guessed. A few of you are still new here. Like, I don't know. So the problem with that, with, with this God orchestrates everything is we've all sinned. So did God orchestrate our sin? Is God capable of orchestrating our sin? Is, is God the author of evil? Well, James, the half-brother of Jesus, in James 1, 13, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Dragged away by their own choice. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full-blown, gives birth to death. So, is God the author of sin and evil? No. So then maybe God's not orchestrating every single thing. Because I'm pretty sure I made some choices that God didn't orchestrate. I'm pretty sure you did too. I'm not pointing at anybody. <laughs> pointing at everybody. So what's the other camp? The other camp says that God created a world, and he had a pretty good idea what was going to happen, but he wasn't real sure. And just kind of set it in motion. And when you zig, he zags. 
Right? God is responding to what you do because God has a plan that he hopes will happen. And so God is doing these things, just he's responding to our activity. But, but I don't think that's true either. Psalm 33, the Lord foils, foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts, foils and thwarts, that's fun. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm. What's that next word? Forever. Forever, ever, ever, ever. Remember that song? Sorry, Miss Jackson. Forever. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purpose of his heart through all generations. It doesn't sound to me like our actions cause his plans to fall. So it's almost like this is hard for us. This is going to be really, really hard because we can't get in the camp. And as evangelicals in America, we want nothing more than to have a side. Right? I want to be on that side or that side. Right? Liz and I talk about this more. I mean, this is what we want to do. We want to get in a camp, and if you're in the other camp, you're wrong. But what if sometimes the Bible doesn't want to put you in a camp? What if it wants to draw you out of your camp into a situation where you hold your theology not like this, but like this? I don't really know. What if the camp God is calling us to stand in is a camp that said, yeah, he's in control. And yeah, we have choice. Both and. Like, what if that's where we're called to stand? Sometimes the truth isn't in one camp or the other. Sometimes it's in the middle. And so the Bible doesn't seem to say that we're just puppets in God's play, nor does it say that we have freedom that can foil his plan. So what does that mean? There's a story in the Bible of a guy named Joseph, and this is a good one, man. This, to me, is just the heart of, of this message today. If you hadn't, Joseph is this dude, and he's, um, he's got brothers, and they're super jealous of him, which I can totally relate to. And so he's, he's, got, he's got these brothers, and, and they sell him into slavery, which is pretty sorry. Uh, my mom would have been so mad. <laughs> like, they sell Joseph into slavery. They take his little cute coat. They put lamb's blood all over it, all these things. And then Joseph goes to Egypt, uh, and he ends up being accused falsely by this dude's wife of hooking up with her. And all this stuff happens. Joseph is thrown in jail. But somehow through all these things, Joseph ends up next in charge to all of Egypt. He ends up vice president of Egypt, okay? This is Joseph now. And, and so, and listen to what, what happens in Genesis fifty twenty. So Joseph's brothers, this is great, right? Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery are now hungry because they're out of food because they didn't make good Joseph choices. And they come to Joseph and say, give us some food. And Joseph tells him, hey guys, it's me. And in Genesis 50, listen to this, you intended to harm me. You intended to harm me, but God, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you hear that? Who caused the evil in Joseph's life? His brothers. God's like, don't give me credit for that one his brothers. But who's taking what the enemy meant for evil and working it for good? God. Who's responsible for the sin and the brokenness in the world? Us. But who's taking those people who repent and turn to God and working even their twisted past for his good? God. Both. We have choice in this world. And there is sin and there is pain in this world. But God is taking all of those things that we will give to him and he will use it for his glory somehow. So what do we tell that person? 
We don't tell them your pain was God's plan. We don't tell people your loss was God's plan. We don't tell people God needed an angel. That's not even, that's not even good theology. Angels are fine. We don't become angels, but that's neither here nor there. We don't tell people that. Here's what we tell people. I don't know why you're experiencing the pain you're experiencing. And I hate it for you. But I know this. I know that my God is good, and I know that he's still in control. Picture it like you're on an airplane. You're flying somewhere, and there's turbulence. God didn't want the turbulence. Maybe even the mask fall down. God didn't want the mask to fall down. But that plane is going to land safely because God is still in control. And the things we encounter along the way are the result of brokenness in this world. And so I say, I don't know, but I know God wins. I know you hurt right now, and I know that is real, and I have no sweet verse or cliche to dismiss your hurt. I'll I'll hurt with you, and I know this, my God hurts with you. I know my God mourns with you. I know he holds you tight like a baby sheep, and I know that in the end, he will land this plane. But right now, there is pain, and that pain is real, and I refuse to dismiss your pain with Christian cliche that does not help in your situation. And that is how we respond to the world during times of pain. I mean, that's how we respond. We don't dismiss it. We don't ignore it. We don't say, well, you just don't have enough faith. No, you do have faith. You have faith that this world is broken, but God will redeem it one day. And that's the God we serve. And I do know this. There is suffering in this world, and our God is not surprised by it. So not surprised by it is our God that he sent his son to suffer so that we would never experience the fullness of suffering our sin deserved. He is not surprised by your pain. And in the midst of it, he is with you. And he's in control. And to the glory of our God, it may be a bumpy ride, but he will land this plane safely one day. Amen.